thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to see many of you again. Um, I hope it's not an overdose. And uh, thanks to those of you who traveled from distant the hinterlands. Uh, great to see you all, too. Um, so, and thank you, Steve, for the nice um, uh, introduction. As I said to James over lunch, um, uh, the problem with coming up with a really clever title is then you have to come up with a talk to go with it. <laughs> uh, maintains um, somehow the expectation created by the title, but the title did make me very happy when I thought about it. Um, and I also want to say that, th so this is work in progress in two senses. It's work in progress in that um, the last 25 years, one of the questions that has uh, occupied me is, is how do we go? How do we go about thinking about the future um, and incorporating that into decision making, especially um, uh, public policy decision making related to science? Um, but it's also a, a work in progress in the, that uh, triggered by the the uh, invitation um, from Javier to come and present to you. I thought uh, it would be a good excuse to um, to come back to the issue more formally and uh, try to do some more work there. Uh, so I'm collaborating with uh, my young colleague, Jane Flagel, who some of you may know. She spent some time at Oxford. She now um, uh, is um, in the enviable position of working for a small foundation, but, she, but I'm not allowed to say that, called the Spitzer Found Family Foundation, um, giving <laughs> money for uh, climate uh, policy uh, and uh, uh, climate innovation. Um, but her affiliation for these purposes is as an affiliate faculty member with Arizona State University. Anyway, she, she's uh, done a lot of the work around the um, geoengineering case that I'm going to present. Better put on Michael. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the first contextualizing point to make, which is obvious to all of us, but I just want to offer it as a reminder is that decision-making is inherently forward-looking. Um, decisions are made in anticipation of an outcome in, in, in the future, uh, generally. And, uh, and so there is an automatic kind of seductive appeal to any uh, claim on behalf of foreseeing, foretelling, um, forecasting, uh, and decision-making processes. And science, of course, has avidly uh, walked uh, into that seductive claim, um, especially in the past uh, 30 or 40 years as modeling um, uh, capacities have increased with the increase in data gathering and data processing capabilities. So, uh, but this is a part of the human enterprise. It always has been, it always, uh, it always will be. And um, it has been, I think, inadequately problematized. And so it's great that you all are systematically uh, looking at that. So as Steve uh, alerted you to, and most of you knew anyway, the title is a, is a takeoff on the famous, uh, quite wonderful uh, paper, The Science of Muddling Through, 1959 paper by Charles Lindblom. If you haven't read it, please read it, because you'll enjoy it. It's just a great paper. Um, and uh, uh, what Lindblom basically uh, said was that um, uh, the, the rational actor model of decision making um, in policy making, where we evaluate options, rank uh, values, and make the best choice isn't the way that anyone actually does things in the real world, 
Um, in fact, what we do is we make uh, incremental choices and uh, see what we learn from those choices and then make additional course corrections in the future, and that's how we muddle through uh, rather than um, uh, invoking an imperial uh, uh, omniscient view of things, which is what would be required from a, uh, uh, from a kind of a naive and yet still very powerful view of, uh, of decision-making. And um, Uh, okay, uh, this is an American cultural illusion. I don't know how many of you know who that is, but, but uh, uh, so that's Lindblom. That's his, that's his paper. Um, this is Alfred E. Newman, who is the uh, Jerry might be the only one in the audience who knows who he is. He's an American cultural icon, at least for ne'er do wells like me, uh, from a magazine called Mad Magazine, a satirical cartoon magazine that I would read growing up. And his motto was "What me worry." Um, uh, but the point I want to make here is that, that um, you know, in some ways, right, the promise of modeling is the promise of not having to model. Because if we can incorporate all of the relevant factors into a model, um, then we can have the machine do the work for us, the model do the work for us, and we can, in fact, uh, proceed in the uh, imperialist, um, uh, highly rational way of making decisions that... Uh, that our Enlightenment forebearers and our macroeconomic uh, brethren say that we ought to be doing. Um, and so I'm going to start with just presenting a case that actually does that and does it pretty well. And you may have already talked a bit about this in previous uh, seminars, uh, which is hurricane forecasting. And so this uh, is perhaps an exemplar of what Lindblom called the, the rational comprehensive approach. That is, get all the data. Uh, rank your values and uh, make your decisions. And as we'll see, in some ways, it's uh, it's made made simple by some of the uh, attributes of the hurricane problem. So, um, so I'm going to treat models as I've intentionally given you too much text to read. Although there will, this will be a texty talk, which is not my style, but I hope you'll find some of the text. Anyway, I'm going to treat the models as black boxes. Um, uh, but for each of the three cases, I'll, I'll give you overly dense verbiage just to show you that out there, you know, there are people um, who are describing uh, the mechanics of these models in, um, in very specific ways. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, ha uh, whatever, too lazy, too ignorant, too stupid to understand the intricacies of all the models, so I am happy to accept them uh, as black boxes uh, for the most part, and so that's what we're going to, uh, that's how I'm going to proceed today. But just, I mean, there are a couple of interesting points about uh, weather models and hurricane models, right, which is there's lots of data that they can collect uh, about things like temperatures and wind and precipitation and soil moisture, um, and our ability to capture that kind of data has increased significantly. Um, in recent years, I'll talk about that. Okay, so here's a, um, spaghetti grams of a hurricane plot uh, from uh, from this last fall, September, of Hurricane Florence, the one that dumped enormous, unprecedented amount of rain uh, on the southeast uh, coast. And this, these are five-day um, uh, spaghetti grams. And what they show is uh, the different tracks predicted by different models. Um, and, uh, and so they all show some, almost all show, uh, fairly parallel tracks uh, that, um, uh, where there's a prediction on Friday of uh, an approach uh, to the southeastern coast that would strike uh, five days or more. Um, hence, this is uh, wind speeds. So you can see the wind uh, 
speed build up as it comes near the coast and then quickly dies off as the hurricane approaches the coast. So we're just going to look at, at how these actually uh, proceeded over the next um, week. Uh, so these were the, um, the track predictions on different days moving towards the hurricane. Uh, and so this is the current um, location of the hurricane at the time the forecast was made. Uh, this is the, the uh, predicted uh, path using a suite of models. So this represents the, uh, the uncertainty uh, of, the, of, uh, of the different models. And uh, this represents the predicted path of the uh, eye of the hurricane. Um, so keep your eye out on, um, let's see. So 2 a.m. Friday, that's the predicted time when the eye of the hurricane will strike the coast. Uh, and so we see here it's approaching. This is, uh, this is Wednesday, 5 a.m. This is Thursday, 5 a.m. And 2 a.m. Friday, in fact, we see the, uh, uh, we see the hurricane striking the coast. Uh, interesting things are happening in terms of, let's go back for a second, uh, in terms of the behavior of the hurricane. So we see it ballooning out beyond five days, so the uncertainties, uh, beyond three days. So the uncertainties rapidly increase, and they also rapidly increase as the hurricane encounters land, and that, I guess, must complexify the turbulence as a phenomenon. Um, and then this sharp right turn emerges, but with very broad um, uh, uncertainty bars. And again, uh, this remarkably precise um, prediction of when the hurricane would strike, um, and just a continuation over the next couple of days. And um, one so not wanting to take anything away from the fantastic uh, predictive accuracy of, of uh, these forecasts. Um, in, in, within the details, some uh, things that are, uncertainties are important for, for policy making. Uh, so Monday at 5 a.m., uh, the forecast of where the eye of the hurricane would be the following Saturday at 2 a.m. was at number one. And then this shows you that eventually these all converge about uh, as to on where the eye actually was. But the point is that the hurricane stalled over the coast for a lot longer than anyone expected, which, is, which accounted for the, uh, un, for the huge amounts of, of rain there. So that was not uh, forecast five days in advance. It was only forecast three days in advance. Um, okay, so, um, so how can we understand this success, uh, uh, this remarkable forecastability? Well, um, Here's what some hurricane forecasters say. Uh, incredible advances. Um, errors have been cut uh, by two-thirds. And here you can see this is the, the forecast error over time. Um, this is uh, 24 hours, 72 hours, 120 hours, obviously. Forecast error increases. That also becomes more irregular. But the, what, what I want to uh, point you to in particular is how this is explained. It's explained by Global modeling advances, data assimilation improvements, dramatic increases in observations from satellites, and use of ensemble forecast techniques. As if each of those is an unproblematic variable in and of itself. So what exactly enables a global modeling advance, one, one might ask. Um, and what do data assimilation improve, improvements actually mean? So. Um, what I want to now do is take a step back and look at some of the other factors involved in, uh, in this success. And I should say, um, this is a first cut at a list. It's pro it probably could be more parsimonious. I'm sure I missed some things. Um, and so any ideas that you all have and how to 
uh, how to formalize this more effectively would be gratefully um, accepted in the conversation. But I want to just point to a couple of things. First, if you just think about the scientific uh, context, there's a number of things very specific to hurricane forecasting that aren't true for lots of other kinds of forecasting, like the, the two cases I'll discuss uh, in a little bit. Um, so there's, there's a clear technical goal, which is to forecast the path of the hurricane. Um, there's pretty good theory. There's tons of data. And a point I want to uh, emphasize here is, is that, that the data are about things, and I use this with scare quotes around it, but, but wanting to still um, uh, make a point that maybe is, is in some ways um, the kind of thing that Steve will not be happy with, but that, that uh, uh, there are things like wind speed and temperature and soil moisture are things that, you know, one, we use instruments to go out and measure directly in nature. They're not, they're, they're, yes, they're constructed, yes, the, the, the technologies are black boxes, but all the same, they're, they're sort of natural kinds, okay? Um, and that's different than data in other kinds of models. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, it's a discrete phenomenon, a hurricane, lots of models. Uh, short time horizon, we're only trying to predict for five or six days after that things go gaflui, but the point is that's good enough to actually be useful. Um, very important is the fact that uh, um, we can learn a lot simply by repeatedly making these forecasts. So these ensemble forecasts are done four times a day, every day of the year, year after year, so tens and tens of thousands uh, of examples of forecasts that can be then tested against what really happens to improve the model. So there's huge opportunity for feedbacks and empirical, empirical feedbacks that allow you to improve. Uh, similarly, clear performance metrics, that is, you know, do, do they actually uh, replicate what's happening in the real world? Um, and you can demonstrate improved predictability or improved skill. So that's just on the modeling end. None of that stuff, all that stuff has to do with, um, with why you can have global modeling advances. Um, because if it weren't for those conditions, those advances would be much more difficult to uh, achieve, but that's not, obviously not generally discussed. And then in the decision context, also important things about how is it that the models are used effectively? Um, well, one reason is uh, that everybody has a uh, desire to get out of the way of something that's going to kill you. So this falls into, into Roger Pilkey's uh, tornado politics, uh, I guess, we call it volcano politics just to make it a different phenomenon. But anyway, tornado <laughs> politics dimension where there's no debates about what is to be done. Um, uh, if, if you know that a 120 knot uh, uh, hurricane is approaching, um, you're generally happy to get out of its way. High stakes also, high shared stakes. Um, uh, familiarity with the phenomenon that most people uh, who live in hurricane areas are, are, are aware of, of the hurricanes, have maybe even experienced them, know there's something to be uh, afraid of. Um, they also are experienced with receiving the information. We all know how to get, uh, we, we all um, uh, are comfortable with weather forecasts and even the probabilistic nature of them. Um, the time horizon's long enough uh, to give you the warning you need to evacuate. Um, it's short enough that you don't really have time to argue about it. Uh, you simply have to make a decision. This enables uh, mayors to order evacuations that generally get followed. Obviously, a simple decision, do you leave or do, you, do I stay or do I go? Um, uh, clear metrics of success or failure. Uh, if you don't evacuate and the hurricane hits and people die, um, 
uh, someone's head's going to roll, which has to do with clear lines of accountability. So, so we might call this uh, predict then act decision framework, where the roles of the role of the models actually is prescriptive. It tells us what to do. Okay. So that's the easy one. Um, Now let me switch gears entirely uh, to another place where models seem to be important, and that is uh, monetary policy in the, in the U.S., um, a, sub and a subject about which I know pathetically little. But what I've discovered is incredibly interesting, and I hope you think it is uh, as well. And I guess you've heard a bit about the use of uh, models last week from Taylor, my former student, about, uh, uh, about um, modeling and uh, uh, financial instruments. Anyway, um, so the, the institutional context here is uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, which was set up um, in uh, 1907, no, in 1913, I think, right? So, yeah, 1913, Act of Congress, um, because basically the U.S. economy had proven so volatile over so many decades that there was uh, one of these rare moments of, of uh, political action um, to, to get the problem under control. So it was a standard U.S. kind of a compromise, a central bank, but also 12 regional banks, uh, the idea being that it would have representation from the regions and the states as well as a strong federal, uh, uh, federal center of gravity as well. Um, and uh, so that's been, this act was, has only been amended once since 1913, uh, in 1935, again after the Depression to try to deal with that um, as well. So. Um, Oh, I should say, let's see. So this is, uh, the, the, the quotes I'm going to give you are all from uh, Federal Reserve governors. That is, people who are either responsible for a regional bank or the entire Federal Reserve. This is the current uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, um, Jerome Powell. This was the former <laughs> one, uh, Janet Yellen. Uh, so she, she talks a bit about the decision um, uh, process. This is the, the committee which is includes most of the, uh, the, the federal bank governors and some other officials who work for the, for the Fed, uh, called the Federal Open Market Committee, considers a voluminous amount of information, many factors, financial markets and credit availability, labor market conditions, um, evaluates forecasts from a range of economic models, assessments of key risks, et cetera. So, but it's this uh, that I want to look at a little bit. So first, here's the black box model. The, the model that's mostly used is, is um, called a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model. Um, uh, but again, the interesting thing here in terms of the specifics um, is that uh, this is a, a theory-based model, um, which includes explicit assumptions about uh, households, firms, and the government, and uses that uh, to build up, so inductively, uh, deductively derive uh, the behavior of the economy from, from that. Um, now, uh, what are people saying about the uses of, of these uh, DSBE models? Um, they're playing an important role in the formulation of monetary policy. Uh, in addition to their presence in academic research, they're increasingly used in policy institutions, including central banks. Um, uh, they provide a general perspective that's critical for economic forecasting and analyzing monetary policy strategy. This is the stuff the Fed does. Uh, and anyone who doesn't like them is dilettante, and doesn't care about policy analysis. Okay. So, so, um, so this is a central tool 
uh, of the kind of policy making that the Fed does. Right? So how does the Fed make, actually make its decisions? So again, Powell and Yellen. So Powell, the system structure encourages exploration of a diverse range of view and promotes a healthy policy debate. Um, and Yellen talks about FMOC participants prepare individual projections on a quarterly basis of the most likely paths of macroeconomic variables under their own assessments. So this sounds really different than listening to what a model has to say. Um, this sounds like uh, a pluralistic committee-driven uh, deliberation process, and in fact, that's what it is. Um, it's quite incredible, actually. This, is, this seems really cool to me. So every time the Fed's going to meet, um, first they, they compile all of the uh, individual projections from each individual bank of what they think the national economy is going to do. Um, so you end up with uh, publicly available charts like this one. This is unemployment projections, okay? Uh, and so this is for, this was for, for 2018 and out. This was, I think these were compiled about a year ago now. Um, and they show the range of unemployment projections. So it's like an informal Delphi process. Uh, the range of, of uh, unemployment projections made by those who are going to be deliberating. And a point I want to make about data, natural types versus constructed types. Um, so people are classified as unemployed if they do not have a job, have actively looked for work in the prior four weeks, and are currently available for work. So, I mean, that's a fine definition, um, but it's a definition. One could imagine many other ways of defining, of defining unemployment. So, so it's clearly uh, one that's... Uh, that's a, the units are millions of individuals, is that right? What's that? Units are millions percent. of individuals? The percent. That? Oh, percent. Yeah, percent. Um, inflation, another uh, issue. The Fed considers several price indexes. So here are just the various, uh, th these are the, the high and low estimates and the medium of various um, inflation estimates, again, from all of the, the uh, uh, Federal Reserve banks um, compiled here. Uh, and then here is... Um, what, the, uh, uh, what people think the prime lending rate ought to be. And so you can see a lot of convergence in the current uh, in, uh, uh, time frame for what people think the right number is. But that obviously uh, spreads out as opinions and uncertainties about the future uh, diversify. This chart is based on policymakers' assessments of appropriate monetary policy. Um, so, and, and then there's an amazing, I think, amount of frankness and um, reflect, reflexivity uh, on the part of the bank governors. Uh, so this is a current governor. Here's how he explains what goes on. This is, I, I just think this is really cool. Monetary policy decisions and elsewhere typically arise from a discussion and a vote, okay? Um, each participant brings to the table a perspective or view of the world. So this is explicitly and consciously pluralistic. Part of the role of the meeting, part of their role in these meetings is to persuade others about their point of view. A member may well have valuable economic information not known by their colleagues. Narratives, they talk about narratives, they talk about anecdotes and impressions, all as part of this decision process. And then in the end, they vote. And what do they vote on? They vote on whether to jack the prime interest rate up a, a quarter of a percent, or down a quarter of a percent, or leave it the same, or maybe in a time of real crisis, Move it up a half a percent. Okay, so so there's simple, there's one tool uh, that is largely the that that is most of what their arsenal is, and not only that, that tool is simply a little kind of incremental tweak on the system 
uh, of a quarter percent uh, or in dire times a half a percent uh, change in the rate by which, at which uh, the government lends money to banks. Um, now here's another interesting d dimension. So this is, again, Yellen, the, the Obama-appointed chair of the Fed. This is uh, Fisher, uh, also Obama-appointed. But this is, this is a mantra that you see everyone in the Fed, regardless of their politics, you see them repeating, which is maximum employment and price stability. Those are the congressionally mandated outcomes uh, for the Fed. So that's what they're trying to achieve. Everyone buys into this. It's a very clear set of goals uh, that um, uh, the Federal Reserve decision-making is aimed at achieving. Okay, so now what about those models that are supposed to be central to the decision-making process? So here's three economists you actually may all have heard of, right, because they're among the most famous economists in the world, academic economists, although um, Lee Summers has had a big public uh, career as well as Secretary of Treasury under President Obama. Distrust conclusions reached primarily on the basis of model results. Um, they're estimated or parameterized on the basis of, the basis of historical data. They can go wrong whenever anything important or interesting is happening. Uh, Stiglitz, the standard macroeconomic models have failed. This is in the, in the wake of the, the recession of 2007. Paul Romer, more recently, was a fairly kind of conventional um, uh, economists in the last three decades, the methods and conclusions of macroeconomics have deteriorated to the point that much of the work in the area is no, lo no longer qualifies as scientific research. Okay. And, he, and he, so he thinks models are central um, to this problem. So, so we start out with declaration that these models are central to the, policy, to the monetary policy process. We look at the process and see that it's actually a deliberative, pluralistic um, process that ends with a vote. Um, and, uh, and then we look a little deeper and find people trashing and happily trashing the models. Um, and uh, so what about the models? Well, here, here uh, is, a, is a longer uh, quote that I think is a fabulous um, uh, uh, it demonstration of, of, uh, of cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, the, the mo and, and you've heard this kind of thing for climate models and every other kind of model too, right? They're a staple in the toolkit of central banks around the world. Um, of course, they're far from perfect. Challenges remain. We have to do more research. The cost of this progress that is, is it estimating meeting the large-scale models with full uh, information methods is a task fraught with difficulties. It might appear more like an art than a science. Um, and, the, and the literature faces a trade-off between integrating more features within a single large-scale framework and focusing instead on smaller models that might be more transparent to observers. You've seen all this kind of language. Uh, in other contexts, most likely. But the latter approach would seem more conducive towards maintaining an active and constructive dialogue between central bank and academic researchers, and thereby continue progress in the field. So this is an effort to, um, uh, to rehabilitate models um, and to explain why we must continue to work on them, despite the fact that they don't seem to work and they actually don't seem to inform the uh, decision processes of at least of the Federal Reserve Board. Um, so, uh, starting with that, that set of, of uh, desiderata that I um, stipulated for the first case, the hurricane case, uh, where does that leave us with, um, uh, with economic models and the Fed? Well, um, most or many of the, uh, of the attributes that made uh, hurricane models effective, both in the science modeling context and the decision context, uh, 
go away, but not all of them. Uh, there's still lots of data, but as I said, it's, it's constructed, interpreted data, um, which means it's, it's less of a direct, uh, it's m much, the, the data are much more inference laden um, than the data in the uh, hurricane cases. Uh, we still have multiple models. Uh, we do have a, sh a short time horizon in that the, um, uh, the tweaking of the, of the prime interest rate is, is meant to stimulate or slow down the economy in the uh, uh, immediate term. Um, there are feedbacks, but the system's so complex it's very difficult to know whether those feedbacks are actually telling you something about your interventions or not, unless you make a huge mistake. Um, and similarly, there are, uh, there are performance metrics. Are you uh, nailing those, those big values of, uh, of uh, controlling inflation and maximizing employment or not? Um, that, I think, is a key part of the decision context, uh, is these clear, these clear sh shared values of minimized, uh, minimized unemployment uh, and minimized inflation. Uh, stakes are very high, obviously, both politically and in terms of uh, people's quality of life. Um, uh, there is experience of the information. There is familiarity with the phenomenon. Uh, there are metrics of success, failure, et cetera. You can read all this. Um, uh, the lines of accountability are there in that the Fed is there, they're making the decisions, but again, just, because, just as the feedbacks are ambiguous, the question of how much blame the Fed ought to get for, um, for the short-term behavior of the economy is not entirely clear. Um, a, a couple of other uh, attributes that are not necessarily relevant to the hurricane cases, I mean, it's, it, it's maybe amazing that there is this one little policy tool that economists have figured out. Um, that if they tweak it, it can have an effect that sweeps across the whole economy, which is changing in the uh, prime interest rate. Um, this decision by committee uh, process, um, and uh, unlike the hurricanes, which are meant to um, uh, give you warning so that you can take appropriate action, these are, are uh, a reaction to past, uh, to past um, uh, conditions. And so we could call this a deliberate then tweak, uh, approach um, in the spirit of Lindblom. It's not the same thing as Lindblom because he, he doesn't see this kind of deliberative approach as, as consciously pursued. To him, it's just something that's, that's uh, implicit in the decision process. But the Fed has figured out um, that it needs to do this. And so that's a really interesting question. How did they get this right? Um, and I think the, the, the one way they got it right was because Shared values and high stakes mean that the cost of not getting it right are very high indeed. Um, and so that leads to an incremental muddling through sort of approach where they can experiment um, until they find uh, the sweet spot that allows them to, to uh, intervene, even if modestly, in the way that, uh, that gives the outcomes that people, um, that people expect and want. So, so this decision context is actually what allows them to not pay any attention to the models at all if they don't want to. Um, now, if you read the longer statements of the Federal Reserve governors, they will all say the models are part of what inform them. Um, but it's not at all clear that that's true beyond the fact that they like to say they have big, complicated models. Um, because every decision, as I say, is incremental on previous decisions. And the differences in their, in their uh, subjective uncertainties around what, say, um, inflation might be a year from now, or what unemployment might be a year from now, or never more than a tenth of a percent or so. Um, so the idea that the models are determinative here seems to me very um, 
unlikely. It seems like they're unnecessary. But they may be necessary for ritualistic reasons, because if we don't have models, if we don't have all this data, if we don't have the economists churning the numbers uh, through the black boxes, then how can we say that we're actually serious uh, economists making serious decisions? So I think there's a, um, uh, there's a, a kind of a um, uh, totemistic sort of uh, value of the models here. Okay. So let me move on to the final case, uh, which is solar radiation management. Um, and uh, do, should I explain that to anyone? Is everyone comfortable with that idea? So, um, so you know, climate's changing. Uh, there's nothing we can do. We better spray some sulfate particulates into the atmosphere to radiate uh, more solar radiation to cool off the planet. So. Um, so models, here's the black box again, models are being uh, offered as ways to uh, forecast what the um, impacts of solar radiation management, especially uh, using sulfate, uh, what the impacts of those might be on the behavior of, uh, of the climate. Now you heard from Mayanna Lawson a couple of weeks ago, so she may well have talked about this. The interesting way that language is used, right? So you talk to any climate modeler and they'll say, well, of course we know these are simulations, but you look at the language they use and the language that they use treats the model as if it's the, if it's the real world. They treat it as if this is an experiment with actual data using real systems. Um, the models have achieved success on a number of fronts. The successor, successes are quite internal to the science system. Um, but the point is that that, uh, that we are, the main tool we're now using to try to understand whether solar radiation management um, is something that can have uh, the, um, uh, that can be used to mediate uh, rapid uh, global warming. The main tool we're using is these uh, general circulation models that um, are tweaked by adding, e either just turning down this, the uh, solar radiation uh, or by um, modeling the distribution of aerosols in the atmosphere. Um, just another, some more black box language. Um, uh, these have a good representation of the aerosol optical depth, depth rep uh, similar to what volcanoes do. Uh, for this study, we inject SO2, okay? <laughs> it's not we model or simulate uh, or have a set of assumptions that are equivalent to. We inject it. Um, uh, and uh, here, here are all the sorts of things we can, uh, we can include in the model in terms of the atmospheric chemistry. Okay, um, so then you start reading the fine print, um, and it turns out that one of the problems is, is that, uh, well, the models seem to show that there might be um, both uneven uh, effects in terms of, of how climate is influenced, um, uh, but also um, that, that climate might be changed in ways that are not a reversion to what the prior climate was, as if that's the state that we're trying to achieve, but actually create entirely new sorts of distributions of, of phenomena. And then, of course, there's those irritating side effects, side effects and implications extending beyond natural science like economics, politics, ethics, <laughs> law, and governance. Okay? So how on earth do we put those into our models? Um, nonetheless, of course, the models are crucial for informing decisions. Now, what decisions are they crucial for informing? 
Um, not yet determined because no one's making any decisions about these. Uh, in fact, it should be said, and I will say it in a minute, no one's asked for these models. No decision makers have asked for these models um, explicitly. But, uh, but this is what we do, right? Because this is, we, we, if we're going to use these models, we need to understand the future. Uh, and this, as the modelers will tell you, uh, is the best we can do. Um, but given that, um, given that uh, the models tell us that the um, impacts on the atmosphere might both uh, create new types of patterns um, but also create uh, um, latitudinal changes in uh, climate uh, patterns. Modelers are now beginning to think, well, we need to be a little bit more, um, uh, we need to be a little bit more refined in the types of models that we're going to create. So, because it doesn't affect, the solar geoengineering does not, we've never done it, remember, does not affect the climate in the same way that increased CO2 does. Um, and so what we're going to need to do, we show that if you were to inject aerosols at a combination of multiple different latitudes, you could better tailor the resulting climate response. So now we're, we're not just trying to understand uh, the implications of SRM on the atmosphere. We're trying to understand how we can tailor the results and turn geoengineering into a design problem. Um, you know, this in the face of the obvious limitations that we all know already in terms of the um, ability of, uh, of our best GCMs to, to uh, tell us things uh, about regional climate more than uh, in, in, in time frames of decades. Okay, so once it becomes apparent that there might be regional uh, differences in the ways that uh, that solar radiation management um, affects climate behavior, then you begin, to, you begin to have to ask questions about things like um, equity and winners and losers. Um, so solar geoengineering could also limit global, th these are all uh, uh, papers by modelers or modeling groups. Um, uh, so David Keith, many of you may know, uh, could limit global warming's predictive side effects uh, because these changes would have their most powerful impact on the world's most vulnerable people who lack the resources to move or adapt, one can make a strong ethical case okay, uh, for this research, ethical case for the research. Right? Um, and uh, similarly, we find that an SRM scheme, that you can optimize the way you affect uh, the atmosphere in the model. You can optimize it to make sure that the good things happen where most of the people live. That's what this one says. Um, and then uh, another study also interested in, in equity. Uh, some say that geoengineering will create winners and losers, um, but they, uh, they're able to show that, in fact, if you do it, if you do it right in their model, um, that can be avoided. So um, just to throw this into the realm where you are experts and, and I am not, it seems to me this is this wonderful phenomenon where uh, the fatalist quadrant becomes a very valuable uh, political uh, device uh, for those, in this case, perhaps mostly in the hierarchist institutional context, um, where we can say, we're doing this for the poor people, um, and that's why it's important, and that provides the ethical uh, uh, imperative for doing so. Um, and then this gets pushed even further into the demands on predictive capability. Uh, this is quite a recent paper. Climate engineering with stratospheric sulfate aerosol injections has a potential to produce risks of injustice 
relying on evidence from modeling studies, this paper makes the case that it could have the potential to reduce many of the key physical risks of climate change identified by the IPCC. They carry potential injustice because they're often imposed on low emitters. Okay. So again, um, the models become more precise in the claims they're making about the future, uh, and they're filtered through uh, this um, ethical claim on behalf of the fatalists. Um, and even farther into the realm of specificity, uh, public health claims uh, begin to play into the uh, discussion. Because we have to make sure that uh, solar radiation management doesn't have an adverse effect on, on public health. There's an urgent need to begin forecasting the shifting burden of disease um, in an engineered climate. At this point, if your head isn't exploding or if you're not saying, <laughs> you know, really, um, then you're more credulous than I am. Uh, or you have greater confidence in these models than, uh, than I do. Um, and in fact, uh, this uh, perspective has gotten to the point where now we're giving money to developing countries so that they have the resources to do these models themselves. And one might ask, is this really where the scientific resources of developing countries are best uh, expended in the context of climate change? Um, but we can explore how SRM could affect dust storms in the Middle East, droughts in Southern Africa, cholera in South Asia, etc. Um, and uh, so the, the word explore maybe isn't so bad if it were only exploration. Um, but of course, remember, this is filtered through both a claim of forecast potential and a claim of ethical obligation. Um, so what's left here? Um, so... On the modeling context, there's lots of data, both of the natural kind and of the, um, uh, of the constructed kind. There's lots of models. There are performance metrics, but they're entirely, and admittedly, um, that is by the modelers, academic metrics. Remember, success is getting more groups involved, getting more papers published, and so on. Um, there's no decision context because there's no decisions uh, being made. I mean, I suppose one could say, well, there's decision context to, to, to provide money for models. But in terms of action based on forecast, there's no decision context. Um, what's, the, what's the role of the models? Uh, it, is it to legitimate uh, SRM? Uh, is it simply to, uh, to show the, that the, the world, that modelers can, can uh, do something interesting? Is it make us feel less guilty about, uh, about the potential impacts of climate change on developing countries? I'm not sure whether it's an example of displacement. Um, that is to say, so Steve, the, the fourth of Steve Rayner's strategies uh, about dealing with um, un uncomfortable uh, knowledge, because I don't think it's actually, um, it's not actually claiming to be the equivalent, or it's not acting as the equivalent of intervening um, in the climate. So it's similar to displacement, but you may, may need to come up with another word beginning with D that works for this. Um, but it may be. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and so the stakes are simply too high for us to think that ignorance is a good policy, say Caldera and Keith in a paper where they say that climate modeling is doing climate modeling around SRMs is a no brainer. Um, but of course, maybe it is a no brainer in, in the way that we don't often think about that term. Maybe if you don't have a brain, this is the thing you think of doing. The, the question of, of if of what we're actually creating with these models, to me, is completely up in the air. Um, are we creating political legitimacy? Uh, are we simply creating jobs for, for modelers uh, and academics? 
Um, are we allowing them to, uh, to publish? Are we uh, doing the first step towards developing a tool that's going to be important for, um, uh, for ameliorating the impacts of climate change? Who knows? Um, but the idea that, that, uh, that, that what we're creating here is something that's contrary to ignorance, I think, is one that would need to be explored and, and, and specified. And of course, I mean, I know what this sentence means. It means it's better that we know something about this than that we know nothing about it. But I think I would honestly ask, well, if we don't know what we're knowing through these models, um, how can we say that it's not ignorance? Um, Okay, so uh, I think I don't need to say anything more about geoengineering models. To wrap up, what I had hoped to do with these three cases was come up with some grand scheme. Um, and I started out with, you know, the danger of starting out with a nice title. I also started out with this idea that maybe, maybe we could call uh, solar radiation mo models um, uh, post-normal technology. Um, so anyway, I spent, I, I, as I say, this is a work in, in, in progress, and I spent a lot of the last couple of days you know, trying to do what I do, which is two by two matrices and triangles and stuff like that. But um, I didn't come up with anything satisfying. And I think the reason is that the solar radiation management case is completely a different set of dimensions than the other two uh, cases. The other two cases are very much um, uh, disciplined by the fact the stakes are high, uh, the values are shared, and there's feedbacks on decisions. Um, so the models, so in the, in, in the case of hurricane modeling, that means the models prove that they have great value and they're used and the system figures out how to use them. In the case of, uh, of monetary policy, uh, the system figures out that they're not particularly useful and maybe they use them just to legitimate their actions or maybe they do use them because they help tutor their intuitions or whatever, but they're certainly not central to the process. Right? Um, so the decision contexts um, discipline the use of the models to make sure that it's appropriate. And again, I think the high stakes, uh, the accountability and the shared values are the three important things there, but I couldn't make a good figure. Uh, based on those things. Um, and uh, so I think where I want to end is simply to, to, to someone yesterday um, in our conversation, had a little, for those who weren't there, a little uh, a group uh, seminar, and someone invoked the famous uh, um, aphorism about models by uh, Stephen Box that, that uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful, which has always kind of bugged me. Um, so I'm going to replace it with my own version, which is any model may be useful no matter how wrong. Um, and so the intellectual challenge, it seems to me, is to, is, is to understand how is it that models are useful in the different contexts that they are used. Uh, because I believe what these three cases show is that there's such wild dispersion among the context for model use, the way models are, are uh, used and applied um, in different institutional settings, um, that there may not be anything uh, more broad to say about them that, than that we need metaphors of the world uh, and, and abstractions of the world so we can understand it better to, um, uh, to make decisions about the future. But we knew that before we had uh, uh, digital models. And I'll stop there. Thanks.